Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Aminder here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 7.6 of the 2022-AHA-ACC-HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by a soon-to-be medical student and cardio nerds intern, A.C. Wetstein, answered first by Mayo Clinic Cardiology Fellow and Cardio Nerds Academy Chief, Dr. Theodora Donison, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. Dr. Schweitzer is a professor of medicine, vice chair of clinical research for the Department of Medicine and Director of Clinical Research for the Division of Cardiology at Washington University School of Medicine. She is the Editor-in-Chief of Circulation Heart Failure. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Schweitzer here as a faculty mentor for the Decipher the Heart Failure Guideline series. Dr. Schweitzer, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's an honor to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It's really a delight for me to be here discussing these great cases with you and being part of the terrific Cardio Nerds podcast. Well, thanks again. So how about we dive into a case? Casey, what do you got for us today? Yeah, let's tackle it. Miss Smith is a 56-year-old woman following up in the cardiology clinic for a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Two years ago, she was diagnosed with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 30%. Over time, she was initiated and optimized on guideline-directed medical therapy. She's currently on carvedilol, 12.5, milligrams BID, succubit chovalsartin, 49, 51 milligrams BID, cernolactone, 25 milligrams daily, and pegliflozin, 10 milligrams daily, and ferrosamide PRN for weight gain. On today's visit, her blood pressure is 110 over 80, and her heart rate is 67. Labs show a creatinine of 0.9, potassium of 5.1, an NT pro BNP of 150, and an HbA1c of 5.8%. Following up on transthoracic echocardiogram showed an improvement in LVEF to 55%. What are the most appropriate therapy recommendations for Ms. Smith? A. Discontinue spironolactone. B. Discontinue empegliflozin. C. Decrease the dose of carvedilol. D. Continue current therapy. Tio, what do you think of this case? Hi, Pacey. Hi, Dr. Schweitzer, and hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me here on this episode. So, Pacey, it's a very interesting uh, case to discuss, and uh, actually, the correct answer is option D, to continue the current therapy. The patient described above was initially diagnosed with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and experienced significant symptomatic improvement with appropriate guideline-directed medical management 
So she now has heart failure with improved ejection fraction. In a patient with heart failure with improved ejection fraction after treatment, GDMT should be continued to prevent relapse of heart failure and left ventricular dysfunction, even in patients who may be asymptomatic. This is a class 1 level of evidence B recommendation. Although symptoms, functional capacity, left ventricular ejection fraction, and reverse story modeling can improve with the GDMT, structural anomalies of the LV and its function do not fully normalize, causing symptoms and biomarker changes to persist or recur if treatment is de-escalated. Improvements in ejection fraction do not always reflect sustained recovery, they just signify remission. Just to make some notes, heart failure relapse can be defined by at least one of the following. A drop in the ejection fraction by more than 10% and to less than 50%. An increase in left ventricular and diastolic volume by more than 10% and to higher than the normal range. A twofold rise in anti-proBNP concentration and to more than 400 nanograms per liters clinical evidence of heart failure on examination. So any one of these four criteria means heart failure has relapsed. Choice A to discontinue spironolactone is incorrect. A potassium of 5.1 is still within the acceptable limit in a patient who has been on spironolactone for two years, and this medication is an important part of GDMT for HFREF. Despite the improvement in hemoglobin A1c, Empagliflozin should be continued for heart failure with improved ejection fraction, as it is part for routine GDMT of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction even in the absence of diabetes. This makes choice B incorrect. Similarly, choice C is incorrect because carvedilol should be continued at the same dose as the patient's heart rate is within the desired range. Furthermore, all GDMT should be continued in patients with heart failure with improved ejection fraction as emphasized above. Because this is such an important issue, I will emphasize the main takeaway again. In patients with heart failure with improved ejection fraction after treatment, guideline-directed medical therapy should be continued to prevent relapse of heart failure and LV dysfunction, even in patients who may become asymptomatic. This is a class 1 level of evidence B recommendation. Dr. Schweitzer, what are your thoughts on this recommendation and on the tendency to discontinue or decrease guideline-directed medical therapy in patients with heart failure with improved ejection fraction? What are your thoughts on the benefits of continuing therapy? What do you think? You know, a great case, a really practical issue that comes up all the time clinically. And the concept of improved ejection fraction, heart failure, is new in the 2022 guidelines. Previously, we just defined stage C heart failure as someone who'd ever had any symptoms of heart failure, but now we really talk about heart failure that's in remission or with improved ejection fraction, heart failure that's deteriorating and becoming advanced heart failure, and really sort of tease out the phenotypes of symptomatic heart failure a lot more in a lot more detail in the new guidelines. And I think that's really important because these are things you encounter all the time clinically. The TREAD-HF trial is the major trial on which this recommendation is based, and the TREAD-HF trial randomized patients to withdrawal of guideline-directed therapy after they'd had improvement in ejection fraction or continued guideline-directed medical therapy. And as you all, all probably know, 
there was recurrence of LV dysfunction in a substantial majority of the patients in whom therapy was withdrawn. So we recommend that one try to keep all the, these patients on their multi-drug guideline-directed therapy, especially if their improvement and ejection fraction seemed to coincide with implementation of GDMT. That said, there are nuances and art to this in clinical practice. And of course, patients don't like taking all these drugs and they're always trying to get you to whittle away their drugs. So, you know, I think this is an area where informed discussions with patients and shared decision-making is really critical. Some patients understand that they're taking a risk that their heart may worsen, but want to try to peel off some of their therapies. And, you know, in select patients, I will do that, particularly if they've totally normalized function. But as you mentioned, often, even if ejection fraction is normal, subclinical abnormalities remain in these hearts. The other practical matter is a lot of these patients have comorbidities, such as hypertension and diabetes, for which these are good medications anyway. And so sometimes I use that to try and convince them to stay on their medication and not mess with trying to withdraw therapy and taking the risk of having worsening heart failure. But the reality is that there are patients who are quite persistent and really want to try and peel off therapy. And that just needs to be done really carefully with close monitoring for worsening heart failure or relapse, as you outlined so well in the question. So, you know, I think the reality is that patients need to have careful discussion of this issue and very informed and patient-centered decision-making around this issue. But the guideline recommendation is based on the TREAD-HF trial to continue these therapies. The one other caveat is, of course, the patient who has a clear precipitant to their reduced ejection fraction or their HEFREF. The patient, for example, who presents uh, with thyrotoxicosis and low EF, in whom if you normalize thyroid function, often the heart will normalize. And those are patients in whom I think it's a, a little more comfortable to perhaps withdraw therapy. Uh, similarly, a patient with a clearly documented history of alcohol use that's heavy, who you also have clear documentation of cessation of alcohol use simultaneous with recovery of heart function. Sometimes you can withdraw therapies in such patients if there's a clear and addressed reversible cause. But that's really the minority of patients. As you know, most patients have ischemic disease or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that's idiopathic. And in those patients, continued guideline-directed therapy is certainly the optimal choice if the patient is willing. Thank you so much for going over these cases. And speaking of exceptions, as you just mentioned, do you have any thoughts about patients who have peripartum cardiomyopathy or patients who have viral myocarditis well-documented? Do those fall in the same exception category or would you keep them on the medical treatment? Yeah, I think in my practice, those patients do not have such a clearly reversible cause. As we know, patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy tend to um, have a higher rate of recovery with guideline-directed therapy than patients with, for example, idiopathic cardiomyopathies. But we're also learning that patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy and patients with myocarditis have a higher rate of underlying genetic cardiomyopathy. And I see these two cardiomyopathies in particular as often two-hit cardiomyopathies, where they have a predisposition to heart disease because of an underlying genetic 
abnormality, often a tightened truncation mutation in peripartum patients, for example. And so I worry a little bit about withdrawing therapy in such patients, even if they've recovered, because I worry that another stress may lead to relapse in these patients. And, you know, with the peripartum patients, particularly who recover, as um, I'm sure all of you are aware, these patients often desire subsequent pregnancies. And this is a, a very difficult and fraught area of, again, informed discussions with patients. But um, in a patient who is completely recovered and desires a repeat pregnancy, you're going to have another stressor. And so I really try to keep them on their guideline-directed therapy. Of course, removing the angiotensin-blocking drugs class if they attempt to achieve another pregnancy, which, you know, increasingly we're allowing if they do have full recovery, as long as they're aware that there's some risk of relapse. Similarly, the myocarditis patients, in my experience, very few of them recover 100% completely. But if they do, I do think that genetic testing is important to make sure if that's a vulnerable myocardium because of an underlying genetic abnormality, you uncover that. And also, um, again, a very detailed and informed discussion with the patient and uh, patient-centered decision-making about around the risk of relapse, which I think is still present in myocarditis patients. So you brought up genetic testing. I was just curious, is there any other type of testing except for recovery on an echo, recovery of the left ventricular ejection fraction? that you would do to help you in the decision whether to peel off some of the medication if the patient really insists? Like, do you check any biomarkers? Do you want to see that the BMP has normalized? Any other imaging techniques that you want to check? Or do you just go by the echo? No, I don't just go by the echo. That's a great question. So uh, in our lab here and many certainly academic labs, we're increasingly using strain measurements. And I think strain is a pretty sensitive marker of subclinical LV dysfunction. So if I have a patient whose ejection fraction reads normal, but their strain is still abnormal, less than 18 or so in systole, I would really strongly advise that patient not to withdraw therapy because I believe there's still subclinical LV dysfunction and that's a patient at high risk for relapse. Biomarkers, you know, if they're BMP doesn't completely normalize, it's hard to know what to make of that. A lot of these patients still have diastolic abnormalities, but that would be another piece of information that might really help you coach a patient not to withdraw therapy. I use a biomarker ST2 with some frequency in such patients. ST2 has been shown to be actually highly responsive to guideline-directed therapy when it's abnormal, which is elevated, and it comes down with guideline-directed therapy. That's actually a very good prognostic marker. I think the the cutoff is less than 35. And I've used that in patients. And if we see their ST2 starting to climb off of guideline-directed therapy, then I can often convince patients that they need to restart some therapy. Uh, I find BMP is a little less useful clinically. It kind of bounces around in patients. But ST2 is really a pretty reliable biomarker in my experience. Harder to measure. It's not in most labs. But I actually, in my practice, use it quite a bit. Wow. Dr. Schweitzer, thank you so much for walking us through the expertise in this answer. And thank you, Tio, for guiding us through this case. Beep. Beep.